Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Roger, a student at King's College London. And, and this, this is That Medic Podcast. Podcast. In this podcast, we spoke to Hassan Chowdhury, a digital health specialist for the UK Department of International Trade. Before starting this role, Hassan co-founded Health IQ, a data analytics company providing real-world insights for partners across healthcare. In this episode, we discuss the role of big data, the impact of Brexit, and how the UK digital health market is viewed overseas. Whether you're a big data fanatic or just excited by the prospect of digital health, today's show is perfect for you. Hassan, welcome to uh, that Medit podcast. You know, how, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, now, Hassan, you know, you clearly have you know a lot of experience in the, the field of digital health. But my question is, you know, why should students really care about digital health? There's a lot of different answers to that. So, and, and I could speak about that for a very long time, but, I, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. The first is that we don't really have a choice. Um, if we try to do things in, in medicine, just with the people that we have, we're going to get overwhelmed. There's just not enough people in the world to provide care for those who need it, unless we start to augment those who deliver care and also use digital and data to be more precise and to predict. And also, and we're going to be very honest about this, very blunt, we have to shift the emphasis and the burden onto citizens to look after themselves. And that means we need to arm them with the right information and provide them with ways to look after them remotely. And all of that is digital. So really, we don't have a choice. Uh, so of course, back in 2011, you co-founded Health IQ. I'm just wondering if you could sort of explain to listeners, you know, exactly what Health IQ is and, you know, how that sort of idea, you know, came about. Health IQ came about because there were, there were three of us in the NHS at the time. And we all knew that Andrew Lansley was going to demolish the market that we were in, right? So we were all in the technology, data, informatics space. And what happened with the top-down reorganization of the NHS, um, which was around 2011, was that we were seeing changes to the landscape. And we felt that there was a need, quite an urgent need, for data analytics provision for the NHS. So we formed the company, Health IQ, which was using our NHS informatics and, and data experience and providing it back to the NHS. And we found actually the NHS wasn't really ready. Um, but we found that the pharma, med device, you know, the life science industry were very interested in working and supporting the NHS using NHS data. And the, and the red line in all of this is nobody wants commercial companies to have access to NHS data. So what we did, because we were ex-NHS ourselves, we were able to analyze that data. We, we got access to it because we were trusted by um, bodies like NHS Digital. And we used that data to answer questions on behalf of pharma. So to give you an idea, a drug company might say, is our drug doing well in the, in the real world? And, and they'd ask for a cohort study, a longitudinal study over two, three years worth of data. And they'd ask somebody the question so they could go back to the NHS and say, this has been done by people who know what they're doing. And that's really what NHS data was uh, valuable for, but not being used for. And that's why Health IQ did so well. Uh, so you mentioned the sort of changes within healthcare. You know, what were the sort of changes you were seeing at the time? Um, the, the long story short is we believe in having a provider and 
commissioner split. You know, there's a there's a market in the NHS, an internal market. So you have commissioners saying we are going to purchase these services, and the hospitals essentially the providers would would do that, and then they would bill. So part of my experience in the early days in the NHS as an analyst was to be either on the commissioner or provider side looking at that data. What happened was uh, in the Lansley reforms is that they removed very large building blocks of the commissioner landscape, which we called SHAs, strategic health authorities, and the primary care trust, the PCTs, and they got turned into clinical commissioning groups, CCGs, and there were many of them. And looking back, we can see that our fears were founded, uh, and genuinely, those CCGs were too small, and the hospitals that they were trying to commission from were much bigger. So there was very much a misalignment of size. And what's happened now with the STPs, Sustainability Transformation um, Program Footprints, is they're trying to make them bigger again on the provider side, commissioner side, so they match. Uh, and, and really and truly, the landscape changed because the, the conservatives were trying to make healthcare sustainable. They wanted to make it so that you would have a better market and more efficient, uh, and they're still tinkering at that. Um, so you mentioned, you know, SDPs and CCGs. I'm just wondering if you could sort of explain to those listening and exactly what, you know, those two terms mean and exactly their sort of role uh, within the NHS. So on the hospital side, which is fairly clear, they need to bill somebody, right? And the CCGs are the ones that are saying, we've got responsibility for our patients. Um, so for example, Hammersmith and Fulham, they look after the patients who reside in the area and have a GP in the area. And that's the key. Where does your GP fit? If your GP is from Hammersmith Fulham, then you're going to be looked after by the CCG, which is NHS Hammersmith and Fulham. And then they will go out to try to win or try to commission and essentially buy services on behalf of their of their population. This STP uh, argument is that we need to bring all of these people together, hospitals, commissioners, ambulance trust, mental health community, so that they all play well together, so there's no perverse incentives. One example of a perverse incentive is that social work would say, hey, the social workers would say, hey, we, we don't have a care package for this patient, so you can't, you can't let them get discharged from hospital. The hospital has to then keep this patient who's healthy in a bed. That bed is now blocked. You have what is known as a delayed transfer of care, a detox. And because the patient can't leave that bed, another patient can't get that bed. And that creates a blockage all the way down the system. That's, that's an idea of a perverse incentive because it actually suits the social workers, um, social care, to delay putting in that package of care and save some money, even if another part of the system would get hurt. The STP, and this is not a phrase that you will hear used often, but is essentially putting everyone in a room and saying, I'm going to shoot all of you unless you come up with a deal that helps all of you. Right? It's, it's making the financial risk fit everybody. So you all have a control target you all have to meet. So if one of you wins and one of you loses, but you all win in the end, that's great. But it can't be a situation where one of you is losing and the rest of you are winning. That doesn't work. You all have to win or lose together. And that's what the STPs are. Pooling financial risk. Um, so, so I think you sort of mentioned before that you know the NHS wasn't ready for digital health change, um, which resulted in you instead you know working with pharmaceutical companies. 
Uh, just wondering if you could sort of explain to the listeners you know, why you think the NHS wasn't ready and, and how we can sort of prepare it going forward. Well, let me caveat this by saying I love the NHS, right? So, so <laughs> Roger, there's a but coming, right? Uh, I've, I've worked as a social worker. I've worked as an NHS analyst. I've worked at, at BART's. Um, and I worked for PCTs. Uh, I worked at Waltham Forest. So I, I've been around at the front line using data. And I can tell you that nowhere in the world really has got it, its act together at a national level. You, you'll see great examples and pockets of, of great examples everywhere. But it's very tough to make this happen uniformly. And, and that's the problem. The NHS is the largest perhaps the largest single-payer universal healthcare system in the world. Although I, I know that uh, the Brazilians would often argue with that. But you, you have something that's requiring you to be good at scale. And, and that's difficult for the NHS. And that's just England, right? So what we're trying to do is make sure that the level rises. And that's why you see national initiatives. And there's great work happening from, for example, NHS Digital. And I'm a big fan of their work. So when I go abroad and I speak to the Koreans... And I speak to the, the Israelis and I speak to the Finns and the Swiss and the Dutch. And they're all very good examples, really, of what they're doing. They're all damn impressed by what they see by NHS Digital. We are trying, but no one's really got his handle uh, great. And, and even a couple of years ago, the NHS was the world's largest um, purchaser of fax machines. You know, we've only really started to move towards paperless and, and we're not going to make a paperless NHS still for a few years. There's a long way to go. And there, there are people who, I remember when I was working at Barts, we had a Cerna Millennium rollout, uh, which is an electronic patient record. And we were replacing the old system, the old PAS with Cerna. And it meant people had to use a mouse. They had to use a computer mouse, they had to use the graphical user interface, the GUI. And they were really nervous. They didn't know what to do. And it didn't help that the CERN and Millennium rollout went completely wrong at Bart's. And this is part of um, part of my career before Health IQ was everywhere I went in the NHS, something had just gone wrong. Uh, and I like to argue hey, it happened before I got there. But, but my NHS career is full of going into areas where the data hadn't been collected or been collected wrong. And it's common. So while we are proud of the NHS and the people and the effort, there's still a long way to go. Now, there is a big concern that the sort of collection and manipulation of data, you know, can lead to data bias. Uh, so what sort of things could we be doing to sort of address this issue? It's an interesting question. Um, one thing that we look at, um, if you're a research scientist, um, when it comes to health data, is that all data sets have a bias before you've even done any analytics on them, right? Before you've asked your question, so, for example, I mentioned hospital episode statistics. And because it's a secondary care data set that is built upon billing, right? Primarily, if you're going to bill as a hospital, then you're going to make a record. If something isn't going to earn you any money, if there's no financial incentive for a hospital to bill, you'll find that the data actually becomes pretty poor. So A&E data in HERS is incredibly poor compared to inpatient data because the quality of your inpatient data has a direct bearing on how much money you can bill. Whereas in A&E, they've come in, okay, it's this person, but what exactly did they come in for? What was the complaint? It's patchy because it doesn't affect the billing. So knowing that means you're going to be very careful about what you ask. 
because you've got to be careful about the bias. So those are the kind of things that we've got to keep in mind about the data before you've even gone in with the question. If you go through any epidemiology course, they'll teach you how to look for systemic bias in your research question. That's an area you're fine on, but where people are less strong perhaps is bias in the actual data collection itself. Uh, so once the data has sort of been collected, you know, one application of, of the data uh, is for modeling. Uh, just wondering if you could sort of explain to the listeners, you know, exactly what modeling is and, and where it's being sort of implemented across the NHS. All models are wrong, but some models are useful. And, and I think what it comes down to is that we are all trying to guesstimate something. We're, we're making a prediction or we're doing a straight line to see where something could go. And as, as we do this thing, people are able to make decisions. And really, that's actually where the name Health IQ came from. Because this is, there's this idea that you have data, but then you have information. And the difference is that you add context to that data to make it information. And then if you're able to add enough to make decisions, it becomes intelligence, which is why it was Health IQ. Don't worry, Roger, no one, no one got it the first time. But health intelligence then is, can you add enough information and context to something to make it something you can make decisions on? So when we were talking about models, we found that healthcare and pharma were all saying, we don't know what the expected output of this intervention would be. And therefore, we're paralyzed. We're not able to make an investment decision. So, and, and this became important because of the trajectory of drugs over the last couple of years, which is you found all of the early easy drugs. All of those were found very early on. Now, any drug that you find is likely to be requiring some change to the pathway, some change to service delivery. Something would have to change with the delivery of healthcare. So a drug company couldn't just sell you a drug. They'd also have to help you move some of those obstacles out of the way. So to give you a clear example, in wet AMD, right, so medical retina, you have patients going into outpatients getting injections into their eyes, right? And, and they're two very big companies in that space, Bayer and Novartis. They both had very similar products in, for injections, but they had different intervals. And the problem was that their entire outpatient departments of ophthalmology units across the country were rammed full of patients who were not being seen at the right time with the right interval. And if you don't get your injection into the eye at the right interval, it gets delayed too often, your visual acuity starts to fall. And therefore, it became very important, not just for the NHS and their patients, but also for those two drug companies, that they were able to help get the efficiency of those ophthalmology units fine-tuned so that the um, intervals were being met. And guess what? That requires modeling. How many people do you need at the front desk? How many people do you need doing the injections? And luckily, um, the NHS started to move towards nurses doing the injections, not just doctors, which freed up capacity. And it's those kind of things I needed to work out. So how many people do you need in order for you to be able to inject this many patients? How many patients do you have that need to be seen in the next two weeks? All of those questions need to be modeled. That's why modeling is so important, because this is not in a vacuum. Health systems are full of many factors, from the staff, from their budgets, from the space available. So imagine that you need to do five injections simultaneously, but you've only got four rooms. Those are the kind of questions that would be uncovered by the modeling. So will this take into account you know, cost savings and, and cost effectiveness? 
absolutely. The problem is that there are different types of models, right? So you'd need one type of model, which is abstract, is um, is a fair phrase, um, just talking about the overall cost-effectiveness model. And, and that's what NICE look at, and, and also uh, SMC for Scotland and, and all Wales. They're looking at the cost-effectiveness arguments. But when you're talking to a divisional head um, of um, South End Hospital, talking about their medical retina clinics... They don't. They don't care about that. They, yeah, they, they they care about should they be looking to sweat their assets, free up another room, you know, argue, argue with another, argue with rheumatology to say, look, do you really need that cupboard? All right? Couldn't we? Couldn't we just sh- shove a nurse in there? That that's what they want to get to, right? The nuts and bolts, and and that kind of modeling, which is again, I use the phrase real world as distinct from clinical trial data, you know, something that's um, reflective of routine delivery of care. Now, an area which is getting a lot of, you know, digital health funding is, uh, is big data. I was just wondering if you could sort of explain to those listening, you know, exactly what big data is, uh, but also, you know, what sort of applications are. Big data is a phrase that matters. It does matter. But we've got this other phrase called convergence. And, and convergence in digital health and in digital generally is that one thing that used to be on its own usually merges with something else, right? And the best example of that is a smartphone. You know, if you imagine the number of things, because I was born in the 70s, right? So I'm a, a lot older. But I remember that I would have um, a camera, right? Now I don't need a camera. I've got I've got the smartphone. Um, you can do your, not just your photos, but you can do your internet, you can do your videos, you can do your video games. Everything is conversion to one platform. In that same way, big data, which was really about how do we deal with this deluge of data, is now just part of many different things. It's part of our cloud. It's part of our AI. So what's happening is digital health is a very confusing mess right now of many different things. I can talk to you about telemedicine. I can talk to you about um, remote monitoring. And I can talk to you about AI and machine learning for deterioration. And then I can also point to a company called Current Health, who have a who are Scottish who've got a wearable, which does the remote monitoring, but it also allows you to do video calls, and it also has the AI for deterioration. We are looking at a world of convergence. So yes, big data it is very important. It's all of the tactics and all of the strategies and all the technology in order to manage all of the data that we have, which is coming at us in huge volume, and huge variety, and huge velocity. Right? Those are the those are the things that are coming at us that's very difficult, uh, and therefore we look at what Google's done, or Amazon Web Services, or Microsoft Azure, and you look at all that data that they can manage, and they're now offering machine learning on top of those things. So can you see big data is now kind of blended into the background of all the other things in digital health? So yes, it is very very important, um, and I've spoken to companies. There's one amazing company that came out of Cambridge called Congenica. And they do genomic analysis. And they are the technology that's behind the genomic screening service, which is, I think, 13 different centers in the UK. And what they're doing is they're looking at your genes to help work out what you're susceptible to. Because that's the that's the basis of precision medicine, rather than just giving you a one drug fits all. Can we give you something that that will actually suit you and your physiology. So, of course, there's big data behind that and there's AI behind that. But then when you speak to them, they're going to talk to you about genomics. 
Now, and they, they won't say they're not doing big data. Of course not. But it's not the first thing they'll say, or even maybe the fifth. Uh, now, of course, you are a digital health specialist uh, for the Department of International Trade. I'm just wondering if you could sort of explain to those listening you know, exactly what this sort of role entails. I stepped into a role which is usually for people even older than I am, which is where near the end of your career, you become a specialist. And a specialist just means you support the civil servants who are generalists because you've got industry knowledge. You've got a contact book. You know everybody in the market. You know the trends. And you can help um, provide that insight. So I'm part of a team called Healthcare UK, which is a joint initiative of the Department of International Trade, Department of Health, Social Care, NHS England. And therefore, we promote the UK health sector abroad. We help the NHS and the private sector export. So I remember last summer, I took Great Ormond Street, Moorfields and Imperial NHS um, Foundation Trust out to Saudi. You know, the NHS is exporting. And it's because, quite honestly, we can't borrow money on behalf of the NHS. We can't charge at the point of care. We can't ration care. And they can't sell the car park again. That the, the amount of revenue that these NHS trusts have is fixed unless they can earn more. So now they're being encouraged to go out and provide their consultancy services, their oversight, their education and training, you know, their governance out to the world. You know, you're going to see um, the Royal Brompton, um, who've got a fabulous training center, um, having lots of people come over to train with them. That's inward, right? Money's coming in. And, but that's because the Royal Rompton has gone out to the world and said, come, come towards us. So that's, that's what you see with the NHS. It's the brand. So that's been my role. I am um, a, essentially a champion for the UK health sector. Uh, I also map the UK supply chain. So I go and speak to all of the companies um, to work out what they need. So I know um, you've spoken to Jacob from Acurex, um, who's a fantastic company. They're, they're on a mission to dominate UK primary care before they go for export. Um, and when they're ready, um, I'll be taking them out somewhere nice, um, you know, a UK uh, pavilion, a trade show somewhere. Uh, and, and that's the goal. The goal is that we are promoting ourselves and Brexit obviously is on our minds. Uh, now, after sort of Brexit, of course, uh, you know, would you say it's changed how you know, the digital health market in the UK is sort of viewed overseas? There have been companies that I've met that thought it was a really big deal. And I'd ask them why. And they say, well, how do we get our services from here to the rest of Europe? And I'm saying, well, you're not going to have to go through the ports because, you know, this is software, right? And when we when we get down to it, Brexit's not going to be a concern for anybody to choose where you're going to go. If you're going to go between, say, Berlin and London, you're going to look at how much of my and this is me being very blunt. How much of my how much of my dividends am I going to keep? Right? What's more tax efficient for me? Um, corporation tax and those kind of things. Um, who's got better support for entrepreneurs? And where's their better talent? And in the end, the UK is going to win that hands down when it comes to digital health when it comes to engineers, when it comes to people with machine learning and AI, robotics, quantum, if you want the availability of talent, um, there's not many places on earth that can beat. And in fact, actually, I'd argue there is nowhere on earth that can beat the Golden Triangle, you know, that area between London, Oxford and Cambridge. There's, there's no way you're going to find people who are going to beat the amount of talent available. And that's what it comes down to, where you're better off. So when you're going to sell 
um, your goods to say the Nordics and say we're headquartered in in London, why would they be worried? That they will obviously have a conversation with you about Brexit. Everyone does you know, sooner or later, um, but it doesn't have any tangible uh, effects on you. Hassan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Uh, but before you go, I'm just wondering whether you had, you know, three sort of tips uh, that you could give to students interested in exploring digital health in the future. I would encourage curiosity because I don't think there's anybody who really knows what the answers are going to be in five years' time. I can tell you that machine learning and natural language processing is likely to be a big thing, but no one really knows. So go, go and be curious. Go and enjoy. The second is be brave because if you don't take risks. And if you end up working at, I don't know, Goldman Sachs, right? Great. You know, you, you've, you've done something good. You've made your parents happy. But have you made yourself happy? You know, and when you're at a time when you're perhaps not attached, you don't have the mortgage, all the things that, you know, people who can't take risks are worried about. You know, you're not sure where you're going to live, but who cares? You'll just pick a place. When you've got that kind of life, that's the time for you to take these risks. So be brave. And the third is network like crazy because it's a very, very small world. Everyone knows each other. Your, your network is the key. Um, and without it, and, and to be honest, without it, I wouldn't have had a career, not the career that I've had. Hassan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Roger. Best of luck. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, I'd really appreciate if you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter using the link in the description below. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and take care.